Chapter Twenty Four of Uncle Silas by Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Four. The Opening of the Will. Perhaps the terror with which I anticipated the hour of one and the disclosure of the unknown undertaking to which I had bound myself was irrational and morbid, but honestly I doubt it. My tendency has always been that of many other weak characters, to act impetuously, and afterwards to reproach myself for consequences which I have, perhaps, in reality, had little or no share in producing. It was Dr. Bryerley's countenance and manner in alluding to a particular provision in my father's will that instinctively awed me. I have seen faces in a nightmare that haunted me with an indescribable horror, and yet I could not say wherein lay the fascination. And so it was with his, an omen, a menace, lurked in its sallow and dismal glance. "'You must not be so frightened, darling,' said Cousin Monica. "'It is foolish. It is, really. They can't cut off your head, you know. They can't really harm you in any essential way. If it involved a risk of a little money, you would not mind it. But men are such odd creatures.' they measure all sacrifices by money dr bryerly would look just as you describe if you were doomed to lose five hundred pounds and yet it would not kill you a companion like lady knollys is reassuring but i could not take her comfort altogether to heart for i felt that she had no great confidence in it herself there was a little french clock over the mantelpiece in the schoolroom which i consulted nearly every minute it wanted now but ten minutes of one shall we go down to the drawing-room dear said cousin knollys who was growing restless like me so downstairs we went pausing by mutual consent at the great window at the stairhead which looks out on the avenue mr danvers was riding his tall grey horse at a walk under the wide branches towards the house and we waited to see him get off at the door in his turn he loitered there, for the good rector's gig, driven by the curate, was approaching at a smart, ecclesiastical trot. Dr. Clay got down and shook hands with Mr. Danvers, and after a word or two away drove the curate, with that upward glance at the windows from which so few can refrain. I watched the rector and Mr. Danvers loitering on the steps, as a patient might the gathering of surgeons who are to perform some unknown operation. They, too, glanced up at the window as they turned to enter the house, and I drew back. Cousin Monica looked at her watch. Four minutes only. Shall we go to the drawing-room?' Waiting for a moment to let the gentleman get by on the way to the study, we accordingly went down, and I heard the rector talk of the dangerous state of Grindlesome Bridge, and wondered how he could think of such things at a time of sorrow everything about those few minutes of suspense remains fresh in my recollection i remember how they loitered and came to a halt at the corner of the oak passage leading to the study and how the rector patted the marble head and smoothed the inflexible tresses of william pitt as he listened to mr danvers's detail about the presentment and then as they went on i recollect the boisterous nose-blowing that suddenly resounded from the passage and which i then referred and still refer intuitively to the rector we had not been five minutes in the drawing-room when branston entered to say that the gentlemen i had mentioned were all assembled in the study 
"'Come, dear,' said Cousin Monica, and leaning on her arm I reached the study door. I entered, followed by her. The gentlemen arrested their talk and stood up, those who were sitting, and the rector came forward very gravely, and in low tones and very kindly greeted me. There was nothing emotional in this salutation, for though my father never quarrelled, yet an immense distance separated him from all his neighbours, and I do not think there lived a human being who knew him at more than perhaps a point or two of his character. Considering how entirely he secluded himself, my father was, as many people living remember, wonderfully popular in his county. He was neighbourly in everything except in seeing company and mixing in society. He had magnificent shooting, of which he was extremely liberal. He kept a pack of hounds at Dollerton, with which all his side of the county hunted through the season. He never refused any claim upon his purse, which had the slightest show of reason. He subscribed to every fund, social, charitable, sporting, agricultural, no matter what, provided the honest people of his county took an interest in it, and always with a princely hand. And although he shut himself up, no one could say that he was inaccessible, for he devoted hours daily to answering letters, and his cheque-book contributed largely in those replies. He had taken his turn long ago as high sheriff, so there was an end of that claim before his oddity and shyness had quite secluded him. He refused the Lord Lieutenancy of his county, he declined every post of personal distinction connected with it. He could write an able as well as a genial letter when he pleased, and his appearances at public meetings, dinners and so forth were made in this epistolary fashion, and when occasion presented, by magnificent contributions from his purse. If my father had been less good-natured in the sporting relations of the vast estates, or less magnificent in dealing with his fortune, or even if he had failed to exhibit the intellectual force which always characterised his letters on public matters, I dare say that his oddities would have condemned him to ridicule, and possibly to dislike. But every one of the principal gentlemen of his county, whose judgment was valuable, has told me that he was a remarkably able man, and that his failure in public life was due to his eccentricities, and in no respect to deficiency in those particular mental qualities which make men feared and useful in Parliament. I could not forbear placing on record this testimony to the high mental and the kindly qualities of my beloved father, who might have passed for a misanthrope or a fool. He was a man of generous nature and powerful intellect, but given up to the oddities of a shyness which grew with years and indulgence, and became inflexible with his disappointments and affliction. There was something even in the rector's kind and ceremonious greeting, which oddly enough reflected the mixed feelings in which awe was not without a place, with which his neighbours had regarded my dear father. Having done the honours, I am sure looking woefully pale, I had time to glance quietly at the only figure there with which I was not tolerably familiar. This was the junior partner in the firm of Archer and Slay, who represented my uncle Silas, a fat and pallid man of six-and-thirty, with a sly and evil countenance, and it has always seemed to me that ill disposition show more repulsively in a pale fat face than in any other. Dr. Bryerly, standing near the window, was talking in a low tone to Mr. Grimston, our attorney. I heard good Dr. Clay whisper to Mr. Danvers, 
is not that dr bryerly the person with the black the black it's a wig i think in the window talking to abel grimston yes that's he odd-looking person one of the swedenborg people is not he continued the rector so i am told yes said the rector quietly and he crossed one gaitered leg over the other and with fingers interlaced twiddled his thumbs as he eyed the monstrous sectary under his orthodox old brows with a stern inquisitiveness i thought he was meditating theological battle but dr bryerly and mr grimston still talking together began to walk slowly from the window and the former said in his peculiar grim tones i beg pardon mr ruthyn perhaps you would be so good as to show us which of the cabinets in this room your late lamented father pointed out as that to which this key belongs i indicated the oak cabinet very good ma'am very good said dr bryerly as he fumbled the key into the lock cousin monica could not forbear murmuring dear what a brute the junior partner with his dumpy hands in his pocket poked his fat face over mr grimston's shoulder and peered into the cabinet as the door opened the search was not long a handsome white paper enclosure neatly tied up in pink tape and sealed with large red seals was inscribed in my dear father's hand will of austin r ruthyn of knoll then in smaller characters the date and in the corner a note this will was drawn from my instructions by gaunt hogg and hatchet solicitors great woburn street london a r r let me have a squint at that endorsement please gentlemen half whispered the unpleasant person who represented my uncle silas tisn't an endorsement there look a memorandum on an envelope said abel grimston gruffly thanks all right that will do he responded himself making a pencil note of it in a long clasp-book which he drew from his coat pocket the tape was carefully cut and the envelope removed without tearing the writing and forth came the will at sight of which my heart swelled and fluttered up to my lips and then dropped down dead as it seemed into place mr grimston will you please read it said dr bryerly who took the direction of the process i will sit beside you and as we go along you will be good enough to help us to understand technicalities and give us a lift where we want it it is a short will said mr grimston turning over the sheets very considering here's a codicil i did not see that said dr bryerly dated only a month ago oh said dr bryerly putting on his spectacles uncle silas's ambassador sitting close behind had insinuated his face between dr bryerly's and the readers of the will on behalf of the surviving brother of the testator interposed the delegate just as abel grimston had cleared his voice to begin i take leave to apply for a copy of this instrument it will save a deal of trouble if the young lady as represents the testator here has no objection you can have as many copies as you like when the will is proved said mr grimston i know that but supposing as all's right where's the objection just the objection there always is to acting irregular replied mr grimston you don't object to act disobliging it seems you can do as i told you 
replied Mr. Grimston. "'Thank you for nothing,' murmured Mr. Slay. And the reading of the will proceeded, while he made elaborate notes of its contents in his capacious pocket-book. "'I, Austin Alamer Ruffin Ruffin, being, I thank God, of sound mind and perfect recollection, etc., etc., and then came a bequest of all his estates real, chattels real, copyrights, leases, chattels, money, rights, interests, reversions, powers, plate, pictures, and estates and possessions whatsoever, to four persons, Lord Ilbury, Mr. Penrose Cresswell of Cresswell, Sir William Aylmer, Bart, and hans emmanuel Bryerly, doctor of medicine to have and to hold etc etc whereupon my cousin monica ejaculated eh and dr Bryerly interposed four trustees ma'am we take little but trouble you'll see go on then it came out that all this multifarious splendour was bequeathed in trust for me subject to a bequest of fifteen thousand pounds to his only brother silas aylmer ruffin and three thousand five hundred pounds each to the two children of his said brother and lest any doubt should arise by reason of his the testator's decease as to the continuance of the arrangement by way of lease under which he enjoyed his present habitation and farm he left him the use of the mansion-house and land of bartram howe in the county of derbyshire and of the lands of so-and-so and so-and-so adjoining thereto in the said county for the term of his natural life on payment of a rent of five shillings per annum and subject to the like conditions as to waste etc as are expressed in the said lease by your leave may i ask is them dispositions all the devises to my client which is his only brother as it seems to me you've seen the will before inquired mr slay nothing more unless there is something in the codicil answered dr Bryerly. but there was no mention of him in the codicil mr slay threw himself back in his chair and sneered with the end of his pencil between his teeth i hope his disappointment was altogether for his client mr danvers fancied he afterwards said that he had probably expected legacies which might have involved litigation or at all events law costs and perhaps a stewardship but this was very barren and mr danvers also remarked that the man was a very low practitioner and wondered how my uncle silas could have commissioned such a person to represent him so far the will contained nothing of which my most partial friend could have complained the codicil too devised only legacies to servants and a sum of one thousand pounds with a few kind words to monica lady knollys and a further sum of three thousand pounds to dr Bryerly, stating that the legatee had prevailed upon him to erase from the draft of his will a bequest to him to that amount but that in consideration of all the trouble devolving upon him as trustee he made that bequest by his codicil and with these arrangements the permanent disposition of his property was completed but that direction to which he and dr Bryerly had darkly alluded was now to come and certainly it was a strange one it appointed my uncle silas my sole guardian with full parental authority over me until i should have reached the age of twenty-one 
up to which time I was to reside under his care at Bartram Howe, and it directed the trustees to pay over to him yearly a sum of two thousand pounds during the continuance of the guardianship for my suitable maintenance, education, and expenses. You have now a sufficient outline of my father's will. The only thing I painfully felt in this arrangement was the break-up, the dismay that accompanies the disappearance of home. Otherwise, there was something rather pleasurable in the idea. As long as I could remember, I had always cherished the same mysterious curiosity about my uncle, and the same longing to behold him. This was about to be gratified. Then there was my cousin Millicent, about my own age. My life had been so lonely that I had acquired none of those artificial habits that induce the fine lady nature, a second and not always a very amiable one. She had lived a solitary life like me. What rambles and readings we should have together! What confidences and castle-buildings! And then there was a new country and a fine old place, and the sense of interest and adventure that always accompanies change in our early youth. There were four letters all alike with large red seals, addressed respectively to each of the trustees named in the will. There was also one addressed to Silas Alamo Ruffin, Esquire, Bartram Howe Manor, etc., etc., which Mr. Slay offered to deliver. But Dr. Briley thought the post office was the more regular channel. Uncle Silas's representative was questioning Dr. Briley in an undertone. I turned my eyes to, on my cousin Monica. I felt so inexpressibly relieved, expecting to see a corresponding expression in her countenance. But I was startled. She looked ghastly and angry. I stared in her face, not knowing what to think. Could the will have personally disappointed her? Such doubts, though we fancy in afterlife they belong to maturity and experience only, do sometimes cross our minds in youth. But the suggestion wronged Lady Knollys, who neither expected nor wanted anything, being rich, childless, generous, and frank. It was the unexpected character of her countenance that scared me, and for a moment the shock called up corresponding moral images. Lady Knollys, starting up, raised her head, so as to see over Mr. Slay's shoulder, and biting her pale lip, she cleared her voice and demanded, "'Dr. Briley, pray, sir, is the reading concluded?' "'Concluded? Quite. Yes, nothing more,' he answered with a nod, and continued his talk with Mr. Danvers and Abel Grimston. "'And to whom,' said Lady Knollys, with an effort, "'will the property belong, in case, in case my little cousin here should die before she comes of age?' eh well wouldn't it go to the heir at law and next of kin said dr Briley, turning to abel grimston ay to be sure said the attorney thoughtfully and who is that pursued my cousin well her uncle mr silas rothin he's both heir at law and next of kin pursued abel grimston thank you said lady knollys Dr. Clay came forward, bowing very low, in his standing collar and single-breasted coat, and graciously folded my hand in his soft, wrinkled grasp. "'Allow me, my dear Miss Ruffin, while expressing my regret that we are to lose you from among our little flock, though I trust but for a short, a very short time, to say how I rejoice at the particular arrangement indicated by the will we have just heard read.' 
my curate william fairfield resided for some years in the same spiritual capacity in the neighbourhood of your i will say admirable uncle with occasional intercourse with whom he was favoured may i not say blessed a true christian churchman a christian gentleman can i say more a most happy happy choice a very low bow here with eyes nearly closed and a shake of the head mrs clay will do herself the honour of waiting upon you to pay her respects before you leave knoll for your temporary sojourn in another sphere so with another deep bow for i had become a great personage all at once he let go my hand cautiously and delicately as if he were setting down a curious china teacup and i curtsied low to him not knowing what to say and then to the assembly generally who all bowed and cousin monica whispered briskly come away and took my hand with a very cold and rather damp one and led me from the room End of chapter twenty four